Hello from Austin, and welcome to Episode 7 of the National Security Law Podcast, where we have a new motto, the less prep, the better. As you can <laughs> tell, and as you'll be able to tell over the course of the next 35 minutes. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, we're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas at Austin, and it's Wednesday, March 8th, and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. As you guys have hopefully figured out by now, we're both on the faculty here at the University of Texas School of Law. Um, and Bobby, we're both pretty overwhelmed by a lot of news in the national security space. It's a cornucopia of national security law topics. So you say cornucopia, and I think Hunger Games, because the cornucopia is where all the weapons were that you would go and get to kill everybody. Yeah, you know, I feel like that was just like a misuse of the cornucopia concept, but I guess our readers are already reaching for the uh, skip button. We should quickly move on. The cornucopia concept. What, that, el- what else a, can we talk about by that? Oh, there's nothing going on. I'm, so uh, just to give everyone a sense of what we're going to try to cover, in our brief time today, there's uh, uh, some stuff happened over the weekend, Bobby. President Trump tweeted about being wiretapped uh, by mm. his predecessor, President Obama. There's some stuff we ought to say about FISA and, you know, how that works. Um, President Trump and now today, uh, Press Secretary Sean Spicer have been putting out some interesting statistics about Guantanamo with regard to releases of detainees and recidivism. Bobby, I think we should say a few words about that. Um, yesterday, of course, the big news was the Vault 7 scandal, the WikiLeaks dump of the first part of what appears to be a treasure trove of CIA hacking and vulnerability exploits and, and abilities. We'll see where that goes. Um, Bobby, you want to talk a bit about Representative Graves and the discussion draft of the Active Cyber Defense Certainty Act. Not a coincidence, I'm sure, that it's named the ACDC Act. I love it. It gives me ideas for uh, the opening music that we could finally have for this podcast. Uh, think we get, can we afford? <laughs> no, <laughs> we cannot afford Back in Black or Hell's Bells or anything that even I can't remember the name of. For those about to nerd out on national security law, we salute you. Indeed. Um, wow. We're, we're, we're waiting for the weeds already. <laughs> yeah. um, to rescue us, we, we hope to have a little bit of time at the end to talk about the new executive order on immigration that President Trump signed somewhere with a whole lot less fanfare on Monday. Uh, there's a big military commission ruling yesterday that, frankly, I've only seen Carol Rosenberg paying attention to so far about the ability of Al Nashiri to call four CIA witnesses mm. to testify about what happened to him in CIA custody. That's big. That's a, I think, Bobby, it is a big deal. And if we have time at the end, you know, I think we're going to have to talk about the, uh, the upcoming debate over who should be the MVP of the NBA. Um, obviously, the answer is not Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> I cannot. I cannot. I cannot believe you said that. Well, if nothing else, that should give at least some of our Pre- listeners... Prepare to eat crow. Um, no, I won't. Okay. <laughs> and I don't mean the night's watch. <laughs> Indeed. All right, so why don't we turn Bobby right off to Saturday morning. We wake up to a, a tweet storm from everyone's favorite Twitter-in-chief. You know, I gotta say, just as a sort of a meta comment about how much already this, this series of episodes has been sort of linked to tweets... And especially this one, and I feel like we're sort of falling for it, right? Yeah. I mean that that to a certain extent, this is there precisely in order just to to stir people up and, and to get people like you and me distracted from what's really going on. Well, yeah, and spend time talking about this instead of uh, other things that maybe are more substantive. And yet, and yet, and yet. so here we go. Um, we've got the allegation about uh, uh, the president being. Uh, ostensibly surveilled when he was in, in the campaign, I guess. And, uh, uh, of course, there's there's no actual evidence of this, depe- depending on... Well, there goes my phone. 
drop to the floor. <laughs> um, that, 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 by the way, that was also meant to distract you from the <laughs> exactly. Uh, so th there's no evidence of this, depending on what exactly this this meant. Now, I think the critical context here: uh, a number of people, especially uh, you know, Julian uh, Sanchez, have adequately unpack sort of the chain of events that probably led the president to be thinking along these lines and be prompted to comment on it. And it kind of runs through Breitbart, of course. Um, do you think you could give a, a kind of a quick summary of what that chain of events or chain of allegations was? So, I mean, I think the theory is it, it's actually been widely reported before this weekend that there was some effort to obtain some kind of FISA-based surveillance of some group of individuals connected with or at least having contacts with the Trump campaign right, right. before the election last November. Right. Um, if we think about the now public admissions about the meetings that senior campaign officials like Mike Flynn, like Jeff Sessions had with people like the Russian ambassador. Or go back further to Manafort. Yeah. Or, or Paul Manafort and his, I think, well-established connections to senior Russian officials. Yeah. Um, Bobby, I don't find this remotely surprising. Russian officials strike me as the quintessential agents of foreign powers for purposes of FISA. Well, so so here we have to distinguish between who's the target. Of, let's assume, assume for the sake of argument, there was an attempt to capture communications in transit uh, through uh, you know, either a phone wiretap or maybe an email uh, monitoring. And if the target is a Russian government official or, or member persons who are part of a Russian entity, then of, of course there, there can be, and indeed should be, and, and no doubt is, um, various recurring FISA-authorized approval. The allegation, of course, the inflammatory allegation is not that Russians are being surveilled. It's that the targeting directed, Trump framed it as if he himself had been targeted. Um, but there's enough uh, fuzziness around it to where sometimes people talk about Trump Tower. So let me put this right. Do you actually think there's any decent probability that Donald Trump himself as a natural person no. was the subject of no. a FISA warrant? No, no, nor, nor more to the point, nor was I, I'd be shocked and I do not believe that there was any attempt to get a FISA order uh, in his case. Uh, former Director Clapper went on TV the other morning right. and said that absolutely did not happen. So what about, I, the th what about the theory that Trump Tower might be a facility, right, where communications between agents of foreign powers and others were taking place? So, so we need to be specific about particular selectors, if you will. So particular phone lines or emails that, if we're going to make it physically rooted, we probably better make, make it the hardwired phone lines in that building. Were there people who were associated with the campaign working in Trump Tower. Sure. Were some subset of them possibly persons of interest in a counterintelligence, foreign intelligence investigation, or maybe even a criminal investigation relating to Russian influence on the election? Uh, that That's not beyond the realm of possibility based on what's in the public record. Is it possible that in the pursuit of those investigations, at some point the FBI uh, did in fact try to get a FISA order approving surveillance on some of those lines. Uh, the reporting, as I understand it, and I don't know this has been confirmed, it certainly hasn't been acknowledged, but one source had indicated that there was an application along those lines that the FISA court rejected, which is, you know, is always important to flag. The FISA court is not in fact a rubber stamp that just approves whatever comes before it. So in this case, we're told it rejected that, and that when the FBI came back, they were just asking for uh, approval to target Russian entities, which is perfectly within the realm of, of legality. Not just perfectly within the realm of legality, but, I mean, let's just be clear, the whole purpose, right, of FISA. I mean, yeah, so, no, exactly. So, so, there, so there are three things, Bobby, that strike me as very strange about this tweet, leaving aside your sort of thesis that it's all meant to distract us from what's really going on, like healthcare reform, which, by the way, seems to be 
blow him up as we speak, right? Of that, I know nothing. Um, so here are the three things that, that, that I find interesting. Um, first, why is it in the Trump administration's interest to draw further attention to the contacts between senior Trump campaign officials <laughs> and Russian officials and senior Russian um, you know, government and private uh, uh, diplomats and other attaches? I mean, right. it seems to only perpetuate, right, the, 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 the Trump in bed with Russia meme. Right, right. No, certainly, look, if, if you or I were consulted by the president, the president said, you know, should I, should I raise this? I, I, I saw this online somewhere. Should I raise this? And, and if we were looking out for his interest, we might say, sir, that, uh, that's going to draw attention. Because either it's not true yeah, or, yeah. or it is true. And either, either of those are right. bad. Either way, this is bad. Uh, but look, that you know, he's not tweeting for you or me. He's 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 tweeting to stir the pot and to express himself in a right. way that that appeals to a, to. So a this goes to my second base. point. So 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 point number two. Um, if in fact, right, there was some kind of FISA-approved wiretap or surveillance or other kind of counterintelligence operation, um, I actually have Bobby a ton of faith, more than in almost any other context, that it was one that met with the most rigorous review by the FISA court. No doubt. Um, that it, it strikes me as deeply plausible that the original application was rejected and that it was only approved as modified. And that if anything, this is FISA working exactly the way it's supposed to. Yep. And then the third point is, um, let's just be clear, right? Whatever you think of the president and whatever you think of his contact with particular Russian governments, there isn't a foreign intelligence service in the world, friend or foe, that isn't trying to figure out every possible way to get human assets into Trump Tower, into Mar-a-Lago, and into every other place where there's a potential, even the potential, for intercepting some kind of secure U.S. communications. That is, you know, that's surely the case. And so this tweet makes no sense to me on like 11 different levels because, one, even if the thing that happened actually happened, it's almost certainly legal. Two, it would only draw attention to this whole problematic meme for the Trump administration. That's one way to look at it, but I, th I think the right way to understand this is, first and foremost, it has to be said that there didn't have to be a logical explanation for yeah. this. It's early in the morning, he sees something, <laughs> and, and, he, and he fires away. And, and, that's, and that's, for many of his supporters, uh, that's part of the charm, the, just the unvarnished right. nature of it all. And if it turns out this is wrong, misguided, and it gets... It gets law professors unsettled. You know that's not that's a feature, not a bug, as I, I say. No, but there, yeah. but there's more. There's there's also the idea that one of the persistent narratives uh, that we've had going back to the campaign is a clash, a, a culture clash almost between the, the president and the intelligence community. Right. And part of what's going on here is you know a, a refreshing of the narrative that maybe the intelligence community is culturally. Uh, in, in Obama's corner, not Trump's corner, and this is sort of a way of gesturing back towards those kinds of narratives and suggesting that the whole operation from the intelligence community, which frankly is in a position to, you know, take all sorts of positions that he's not going to like, to reduce their credibility with so, the audience that he's trying to, to persuade. Um, in which case, I mean, this is, I, I don't want to jump over what we're going to do next, but in which case this may dovetail with the WikiLeaks CIA uh, Yeah, story. let's actually go to that, because I think that's a good segue. And we'll come back to Guantanamo? Yeah. Okay, so, so if that's the case, then it seems like uh, um, the conspiracy theorists would take great satisfaction out of the coincidental timing that just yesterday, Tuesday, right, uh, two and a half days, three days after this tweet storm, we get the release of the first of what WikiLeaks says is a number of batches of incredibly sensitive CIA documents about their capabilities with regard to various hardware and software platforms. 
Yeah, so there, there's definitely lots of room for beginning to imagine collaborative, coordinated efforts to time this. And you, know, and, and you can imagine the stories running both ways. I, I tend to assume that more likely there's, there's simpler explanations. Um, look, so what do we know? We know that uh, sometime in 2016, someone, whether a full-time employee of the CIA or, as, as has been hinted a lot, um, possibly a contractor, um, and I just can't help but say, I wonder if this will turn out to be, will it turn out to be a, a Snowden-like story? Um, again, inadequate uh, vetting of the people coming in as contractors. In any event, someone with access to a what might be described as a, as a server where uh, developers are working on new exploits um, for, especially for penetrating uh, endpoints uh, devices like your iPhone and Android, that sort of thing. Um, all sorts of tools, explanatory documents, uh, software tools, the, all, all this stuff is there. And they, one way or another, download it and get it out of the building. And some of the reporting this afternoon suggests that this actually may have been detected after the fact pretty quickly, that sometime in 2016, um, officials uh, began to realize there, there may have been this leak. And, and you know, we can only speculate as to what steps were taken uh, between now and then. In any event, the whole thing goes live as the Vault 7 link, because whoever this person was, they gave it to somebody. They either directly shared it up to WikiLeaks or it went to somebody in between. Um, for my part, I look at this and my first instinct when WikiLeaks does something, it's no surprise they do something to degrade the capabilities of our intelligence agencies. That, that is right with the grain of Assange's philosophy that America is a force to be, to be uh, pushed back against in the world, especially our security agencies. Um, but lately we've seen this confluence of interest amongst the Russians, Assange, WikiLeaks. Um, and it's very easy to imagine that the story actually is, is in some way or fashion a apparently very successful uh, intelligence operation by the Russians, and they're using WikiLeaks as a cutout to get this out there. Maybe it's just a, a sort of a would-be Snowden guy or, or man or woman who, who just directly went to WikiLeaks. Could be either one of those. Yeah, although, I mean, it's not the, the whistleblowing angle here strikes me as much weaker, at least based yeah. on the first, the first trove. Right. I mean, in Snowden's case, I, I think you and I probably disagree, as I think many of our listeners will, just how much of what Snowden disclosed really was, you know, legally controversial and, and a close call, um, at least based on what came out yesterday, right? Because there's no evidence that any of these capabilities were directed against U.S. persons. Exactly. I don't see anything illegal. No, no. In fact, it, I'm, I'm very reluctant to call this a scandal if we're talking about what's revealed in the information. There's no scandal here at all. Except, of, except that the information Except that, revealed. except there's a, there's a, maybe a counterintelligence or an operational yeah. security scandal or a, a over-reliance on contractor scandal, maybe. Um, that's too soon to call. But the revelation itself shows the CIA uh, doing what their job is to do, developing tools to try to steal secrets. I mean, that's that's clearly at the heart. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I'm a little more circumspect only because I think, you know, Bobby, I'm, I'm still mindful of the of the very rich debate last year that you and I both participated in when the the government tried to get um, Apple to help them hack right the uh, the encryption on iOS nine. Well, get me specific. FBI. FBI. Sorry, the FBI. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say the government. Um, right. It, it strikes me that there's a larger debate about back doors and front doors, about zero days, and about what the government 
has a right to and what private companies should Definitely. be allowed this, to do this that is this is perfect. going to exacerbate. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it cuts in various ways. It definitely, if, if in class earlier, you and I were talking with students about this, and we put uh, the vulnerabilities equities process up on the board and we're talking to the students about this. This is, this is a revelation of a predictable, but now you have this kind of concrete illustration of a scenario in which uh, a foreign intelligence collection agency, lo and behold, has developed various exploits that are unknown to the vendor and, and they decided whether it went through the vulnerabilities equities process or not, the decision at some point was made not to disclose these things and to use them, which is, I think, exactly what you expect this part of CIA to be doing. And so the interesting question is simply, you know, revisiting that debate. Do we do we think we have the right balance? Now, nothing in the release tells us how they were used. Right. So or, or, or if they were brought into the vulnerabilities equities process. Yeah, I mean, they I might think, have been. They might I mean, not have been. There might be some very uncomfortable conversations in the next yeah. couple of days and weeks between the firms who are participating in that process and representatives of the U.S. government. Uh, you mean, so the firms who are affected by the exploit. That's right. So, but, you know, an important thing about the vulnerabilities exploit, uh, uh, the I vulnerabilities think, equities yeah. process, excuse me, is uh, it doesn't necessarily apply in all instances. So if these, if these are exploits of some Chinese router or a Russian-made phone or, you know, fill in the blank, some non-U.S. company, non-U.S. person equities uh, at stake, it may not go to that process. So, so I, mean, I think the short version is, guys, we want to put a pin in this because yeah. there's clearly going to be more releases. Um, Bobby, I have to imagine we're going to see a reaction from the president on, you know, the something, I, I don't know what the reaction is going to be, but he's not going to say nothing. You know, I don't know, because this one's a very hard, in, insofar as he's taking counsel on this and, and being deliberate in what he might say about this. Yeah, but that's but, if, if, he, if he's not. But, you, said, but, but you, you said to me the critical thing right at the beginning, which is that this happened last year, which means this happened on Obama's watch. Oh, I and see, so, I see. And I so see, it yes. strikes me that, that you know, the president's going to jump at the opportunity to pin what Inadequate really is security. a huge foreign intelligence failure. Careful, Steve. You're, wa- you're writing talking points for the president. Oh, yeah, because he listens to this podcast. <laughs> um, but speaking of the president pinning things on Obama that are not Obama's fault, why don't we pivot to, to topic number three? Okay, that's that's fair enough. The, the Guantanamo topic. So, so. so so speaking of irrational tweets sent early in the morning, uh, yesterday morning, President Trump sent the following tweet, which if you'll forgive me, I'm going to quote in full. 122 vicious prisoners, comma, released by the Obama administration from Gitmo, comma, have returned to the battlefield, period. Just another terrible decision, exclamation point. Steve, what's the correct number? Of what? (laughs) (laughs) So so I I wrote a long Just Security post about (laughs) everything that is wrong with this tweet. Um, Let's go one piece at a time. All right. Let's take the data, okay? The figure 122 comes from uh, a report that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence filed with Congress last summer. Um, And so this is the government's own... This is the recidivism report. um, And this is the the government's own data, which I should say, and I'll I'll elaborate in a second, um, is not unassailable. Um, Sure. Look, there's there's a lot of fog around this particular topic. But let's, let, for yeah, the moment, take it let's take is. the data at face value. Um, the 122 included 113 released prior to January 20th, 2009, hmm, which is to say, uh, not President Obama. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, so uh, let's start right there. So, so he should have said nine. Nine, right. Nine vicious prisoners nine. released by the Obama administration. And indeed, Bobby, this is not a surprise to either of us. No. Because of the radical differences in the vetting processes. Well, so... I, I, I see it slightly different there uh, as far as the vetting process, but also just the, the difference in circumstances yeah. 
the huge populations, the circumstances at the time. Yeah, let, let's just get to the, the actual data for this, the, the listeners about how many people were at uh, Guantanamo over time, how many people right. ever released, and when did it all happen? All right, so, that, so, never mind recidivism. So, so from when Guantanamo opened on January 11, 2002 through today, there have been 779 different detainees that we know of. I think we've, we're now fairly confident that yeah, we know everybody. Yeah, that gets right, yeah. Um, so 779, we're down to 41. Right, so the right. delta is 758, if right. my math is correct. And is it 532 of them? 532 during the Bush administration. During the Bush administration and the remainder uh, during the Obama Now, we should say not all our releases, right? There have been, I think, nine um, detainees who have died. Some, some have died. So in, in under releases, we're using that loosely. There's, there's outright release. There's transfer to some form of oversight. There's a spectrum there of and then control there, and, by and the then other country that and, receives them. And then there's Kailani. And, and then there's the one guy the got taken to New York and is in, and was convicted and is in jail. So, so the reason why these numbers matter, everybody, is because the recidivism question, and I want to pivot, Bobby, in a second to why I think the data is itself questionable. Sure. But there's, I think, no question that however one wants to define recidivism, there's a, har, a far higher incidence of recidivism among the detainees released by the Bush administration than by the Obama administration. I just think it's a it's a fool's game to try to pin it anywhere politically as, as if it's a, well, the Obama administration didn't care, the Bush administration didn't care. These people all cared a great deal. There's a lot going on in these cases and a lot of uncertainty. The numbers, uh, using the, the, the 122, the numbers, most of that, the, the, the kind of the cases the government puts forward as the recidivism cases, those are from... Bush administration year releases. So the, the attempt to pin the rose on Obama doesn't make any sense at all. At all. I mean, and indeed it's... It's, just, it's actually just a mistake of fact. It's a mistake of fact, which Sean, and Sean Spicer tried to say um, that what he really meant, what he was referring to all of the detainees. Right. Um, the tweet, I think, speaks for itself when it says 122 uh, vicious prisoners yeah, yeah, yeah. released by the Obama No, he tried to pin it on Obama. It just, it just is, is, is bogus. So I was going to drop it there, um, but I want to say two but, more things. The well, first but, is yeah, about recidivism, okay. right? So on the recidivism point... It strikes me that ODNI's own assessment of recidivism um, is problematic in at least two respects. Okay, first, um, it's based on any subsequent involvement on the part of the released detainee in what ODNI calls but does not elaborate terrorist or insurgent activities. There's no requirement that it be against the United States. There's no requirement that it be combat or other kinds of hostilities. Right, and there's no clear example, example examples. I'm sorry, yeah. um, of exactly what kinds of cases do and don't count. How much evidence? We know it's a preponderance, but a preponderance of what? Right. Yeah, I mean, this is this is endemic to the topic of trying to use the recidivism language and concept, which is familiar and has certain objective elements to it in criminal law and trying to map that onto the distinct situation you've got. Right, because in criminal law, the question is whether someone yeah. convicted of a crime, which Gets is an objectively of another fact, crime. is convicted yeah. of another crime. Right. Um, and in criminal law, the recidivism rate right, right. is actually fairly high. Oh, it's real high. I think so, it's in the 40 percentile, no something idea. like that. Well, we do, but I do know this. So there's, a, there's plenty of room for reasonable disagreement as to conceptually what should count as Turns out that was bad right. that the guy got out. Right. Right. And and you've got some cases that everyone's going to agree. Like a guy recently released during the Bush years, uh, who ended up uh, committing a suicide bombing. So uh, so recently. everyone agrees that what he did after he was released was bad. I'm not sure that we know in every single one of these cases, right, that they were properly detained in the first place. Okay, but that, that just opens up a whole other set of but, arguments. But my, so but, that, but my point is that the, the data is yeah. is 
Well, I want to make I want to make this point yeah. that there's a spectrum here from things that everyone would agree that's bad. If someone was at Guantanamo yeah, and totally. went on to do that, that's horrible. And then there's a spectrum that goes through things that are bad, but do they count as recidivism? Right. That may involve more th- things more in the nature of material support or just hanging out with the old bad crowd. Right. There, after, after I got out of Guantanamo, right. I took some aid money and gave right. it to an Islamic charity that I know is affiliated with Hamas. The only thing that can really be said reliably is some people do go back and cause violent harm to others, sure. and some people don't. And then there's a spectrum between... And it's a little, I think, it's, it's a little bit of a distraction from the things we ought to focus on to try to pin it politically I completely on agree. either administration. No, no, I, I completely agree. Yeah. The, the, the only thing I want everyone to take away from is even the government's numbers, right, completely undermine President Trump's statement. Oh, no question. Look, the, and, this statement right, is just, just wrong. And the government's way. numbers themselves are quite debatable. To me, it's the high end of the spectrum. It's, yeah, no, no doubt about that. It's definitely important for listeners to know there's, there's fierce debate about these numbers and for every, for every uh, critique we can lodge against the DNI's numbers, there are people who put forward you know, really narrow numbers where maybe they've drawn the circle That's too right. tightly. That's right. But, but just to, to close the loop, um, I was ready to drop it there, Bobby, and then we got out of class and I found out that Sean Spicer had addressed this in today's press briefing. Yes, what, what was his new uh, What was the new So here's the quote. Uh, uh, this, is, this, is, this is what I'm reading off of the Internet. Um, that the difference between the high number, the 113 figure during the Bush administration, and the low number, the nine during the Obama administration, is because, to quote Sean Spicer, under the Bush administration, most of those were court-ordered, period. Yeah, that's, that's super not right. That is super not right. Okay, so here's the, the simple math. It's, it, this is not hard, everybody. I hope you're all sitting down that you've buckled up your seatbelts. During the Bush administration, Bobby, do you know exactly how many detainees were released by court order? Three. Three. Okay, um, Bobby, I'm not good at math, but three out of 532, is that most? I don't know. I went to law school to avoid these kinds of questions. Three out of 113, still not really most? I think not. So the, my, my problem here is not just that they are quite obviously and nakedly misstating the record. It's that they're doing so in a way where they're trying to apportion blame and responsibility on institutions or actors where the data is to the contrary. Completely agree. I, look, I think that it's good. We we got to call these things out. These these outright inaccuracies. These, this I don't know if it's a falsehood or a misunderstanding. Is it possible he thinks that the administrative review boards and the combatant staff review tribunals, which collectively They've never heard of those things. No, no. Well, exactly. But when when they saw some reference to him, did they conclude? mistakenly that, oh, that must have been a judicial order. No, 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 Those were, that's just the internal military process. It's, it's, having been part of the habeas litigation this whole time, which has had so many obstacles and false starts and, yeah. and headaches. I'm sure you find it extra jarring. I find it extra jarring for the press secretary to say, no, 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 all of the Bush administration releases were pursuant to court orders, yeah. when in fact all but three of them were not. Yeah. And it, this is a point I... I I think is often lost in the the obsessive focusing on Guantanamo to the exclusion of other detention yep. facilities over the years. In in the heyday of Guantanamo, vastly larger numbers of detainees were being held in Afghanistan and especially in Iraq. We're talking about orders of magnitude bigger numbers. And in all those active theaters of ground combat operations where a false negative in releasing someone much more likely will result or can result and somebody, immediate harm. Yeah, immediate harm, including to U.S. forces who then get hit with an ID or what have you. Um, it's just an endemic problem. Commanders there understand that they can't just have a 0% 
uh, false negative rate. They're going to have to release. There's competing considerations. It, it's, it's, a, it's a hard topic, right? Yeah. All I want to say is I don't like where this is going. I don't yeah. like the repeated efforts, not just by President Trump on Twitter, which I'd be willing to sort of dismiss as the wacky ravings of a crazy man, um, but by the administration to systematically try to rewrite this narrative. I, I don't like the precedent it sure. sets if and when we actually have a serious conversation about future cases. Totally agree. Look, I like the truth. And it doesn't it doesn't advance any no matter what your perspective on these issues. Exactly. We gotta gotta keep shining the flashlight on it. Um, it it is important to tie it back into a legal topic before we move on. What's fascinating is if if the if there is actually some conscious effort behind this, and I'm not sure there is, but if there's a conscious effort that's actually meant to prepare the policy battlefield for a policy change, presumably the relevant policy change is uh, changing up the periodic review board process and removing some of the interagency participants in it, truncating it, who knows, maybe even just killing it off altogether, um, hasn't happened yet, which makes me wonder whether this actually isn't something as a policy matter they're focused on, it's just the politics of, you know, blame, you know, draw attention to the predecessor and, and deflect from your own problems. I but think that might be a part of what's going on. Maybe. Um, Bobby, while we're on Guantanamo, why don't I quickly hit the Nashiri ruling? Yeah, yeah. So there's more going on at Guantanamo than just detention decisions and release decisions. What about prosecutions? Yeah, these military commissions keep marching along. So um, yesterday, as Carol Rosenberg first reported, in the Miami Herald, and if you guys, if you don't follow Carol Rosenberg, you really ought to. She is indefatigable. Um, the trial court, the trial judge in the Nashiri military commission case, remember this is the guy who's accused of being involved in the bombing of the USS Cole and the MV Lindbergh, um, granted Nashiri's fairly hard-fought um, uh, effort um, and motion um, to produce and to have four witnesses testify um, at a pretrial hearing as to exactly what happened to him in CIA custody. Was he tortured? If so, what were the consequences? Bobby, this is, you know, obviously the rules of the military commissions make it very difficult for the government to take advantage of any statements listed through torture, but it's not as clear... In, what indeed, uh, involuntary statements, period. Are, ...are out, right. Um, but it's not as clear to what extent the defendants, right, are allowed to use what happened to them as grounds for potential sanctions or mitigation or so other So that's relief. my first question to you, and just to be clear to listeners, this is something you've been following, but I've, I've not, so I'm, I'm just kind of asking for my own, my own uh, learning. Uh, is this in connection with a motion to dismiss the indictment for outrageous government conduct which or, or, or some military commission analogy to that? So I think there are a couple of things going on. I think, one, there is and will be and probably, you know, will be further motions to dismiss that will be denied. I mean, let's just right. be clear. And um, I should say it's not an indictment in this case, but dismiss the charges. An inf yeah. Right, the, yeah. whatever the, 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 the information. Um, but, but I actually think, Bobby, what's going on here is an effort on the part of Nashiri's lawyers to build a record for mitigation. Um, so mm -hmm. that if and when he's convicted, they have as compelling an argument as possible against an imposition of the death sentence. So it's interesting that why is this coming up now then? I mean, I guess the interesting question for me is why is the court entertaining uh, uh, this sort of dispute if it only goes to mitigation? That should come up. No, no, no I mean, I'm saying it's also relevant to various yeah, pre-trial oh, motions. But, but I the think strategy. the broader strategy yeah. is to get this stuff on the sure. record now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, one of the interesting questions is, the way that the Military Commissions Act works, the government has limited rights of interlocutory appeal. Yeah, can they appeal this? 
It depends. Um, so not as such, right? The kids appeal a trial court order about witnesses. Um, insofar as the judge's order leads to the introduction or disclosure of classified information, let's say, for example, the names of the CIA witnesses, right, or the right, substance right, right. of their testimony. But presumably they're going to take great care to prevent And that's the knowledge. question. So it's actually not until we have this prospect of disclosure of classified information that under 10 U.S.C. section 950 D, uh, A4. Good heavens. Um, you can actually see an interlocutory appeal. <laughs> and Bobby, if there is an interlocutory appeal, we go right back to this whole, you know, um, the, uh, uh, the interminable the appellate, interminable process, appellate yeah. process. Because that will drag things on for that much longer. So another thing I don't know, is this, I, I had assumed this was for some sort of uh, pre-trial hearing. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. okay, so it's not for the, the merits. Well, I think, I, mean, I think yeah. the idea is, and then, and then depending upon what they say, yeah. right, they'll they'll fight over later whether any of those statements ought to come in at the trial yeah, yeah. itself. Yeah, it's just hard to see how it goes to you. But all this is to say, guys, I mean, there is a lot of still very important, very messy, very controversial stuff happening right. on the ground in the military commissions with cert petitions now pending in Nashiri um, on the jurisdictional question, soon to be pending in Balul on the yeah, jurisdictional question. Yeah, the Supreme Court has got to get in the game here and clarify some of the questions that will determine whether all of this is worth the candle, that's right, that's right. or if instead the whole thing has got to get shifted into... And, the I, and I think we actually, justice. we ought to commit now to having a special military commissions in the Supreme Court episode sometime, sometime in the next couple couple weeks or months. That'll be good because you'll do all the analysis. I'll just, I'll just ask questions. <laughs> all right. Um, we're, we're already past the, the halfway, the halfway, the 30-minute right. mark. Let's Bobby, move into true lightning round. Okay. So you want to talk about the Active Cyber Defense Certainty Act, the ACDC Act. I, I, I so want to talk about the ACDC and Act. And not just because of the name. So first of all, I want to say how cool it is. So uh, Representative uh, Tom Graves from Georgia, 14th District, did this really cool thing that I kind of consider a, a model that you could apply in almost any kind of legislative idea setting. He, they, they did up a discussion draft. I had no prior contact of any kind, just to be clear. I just saw that this discussion draft PDF had been put out there and with basically an invitation for public comment. I mean, I love it. Notice and comment lawmaking. That's, that's great. So uh, being a big geek and being interested in hackback and active defense, um, I took a close look at it and, and was just amazed to really sink my teeth into the details of, of a good faith attempt to try to do something in this area and I'll explain what in a moment and just how many how many moving parts there really turn out to be once you start having to do uh, drafting of black letter statutory language it really is hard to precisely address this area so what is the area simply put you've got Entities, individuals, uh, corporations, organizations that are in the private sector that suffer some form of security problem in, in, in uh, cybersecurity terms. And maybe the more sophisticated ones have the ability in-house to immediately, with speed that would matter, would matter, to go outside their own network, follow the, the exfiltrated data back to the source or, or follow the attack back to its source and, and take an action that runs the spectrum from just learning more about who's doing this, so sort of a collection of, of evidence or intelligence, uh, to doing something disruptive to stop the attack or, or and so on up the, up the spectrum. And of course, all of that, as soon as they leave their own network and start going affirmatively onto the network of another person, the attacker, without authorization, is itself a violation, potentially, of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So there's been a lot of talk for, for many years about how useful it would be if there's a calibrated way to allow a little bit of this 
uh, but not so much that would that would become a vigilante Wild West type setting. Um, you know, no one's spoken more about this than Stuart Baker, who's who's fascinating on this topic. So. I recommend that. Um, and and, and that, let that be a plug for the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. Absolutely. In many ways, an inspiration for what we're doing. Uh, if you don't listen to the Steptoe Cyber uh, Pro- Cyber Law Podcast, you, you know, stop listening to us. Go listen to that. <laughs> that's that's good. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, Frank Salufo and, and, and uh, the team at GW's uh, Cyber and Homeland um I'm sorry, guys, I'm, I'm muddling the name, but the Center on Cybersecurity and Homeland Security there uh, did a, uh, a Hewlett-funded and Smith Richardson co-funded uh, task force, which I had a nominal role in, although I, I was super lazy and didn't actually help much. Sorry, Frank. Um, they they did a big study of this, search out their report on active defense. It's great. And here's some legislation that who knows if it's got legs. Um, it tries to uh, open the door a little bit and I will not try to spell out in our lightning round what the moving parts are. I'll just say you can go on Lawfare and find my post about this where I go through it in detail. And I'm sure I got some things wrong, um, but I know that the congressman is watching and observing and taking the feedback. So if you're interested in this area, dig in with your own two cents and then and tweet it at them. You'll, you'll be heard. I think that's a very cool model. Um, indeed. And we should talk more about it. When, when there's a little... Yeah, when it starts getting legs. Yeah, seriously. All right, so that's um, really cool development on Capitol Hill. Another important development this week that we really don't want to give short shrift to is Immigration Executive Order 2.0. 2.0. The beta version, I guess. Yeah. Um, Bobby, I thought I'd, I, let me just quickly flag what I see as the four big changes between the original executive order and the new one, and then maybe you can just sort of mm-hmm. tell me what whether, whether they actually are worth the candle. Um, Pass judgment. So, so first, obviously, the new executive order is much more careful about the cases to which it applies. Um, so it carves out LPRs, legal, lawful permanent residents, green card holders, carves out others who have visas or other pre-existing legal entitlement to travel to the U.S. to be in the U.S. Right, it's directed yeah. almost exclusively at people outside the U.S. with no prior... Yeah permission to travel. Okay. Um, right, it's really a big change. Um, second, Iraq has moved from the ban list to the super duper extreme vetting But list, not banned. But not banned, uh, yeah. um, which by all accounts, Bobby, was due to quite extreme diplomatic pressure being brought to bear. Well, you know, when you're fighting a war with an ally and you've got all these boots on the ground and more by the day, um, you, you, maybe it's not the right time to do something like uh, this particular provocative action. Although importantly, the, the the ban piece of the executive order still applies to six the six original countries other than Iraq, mm-hmm. all yep. of which are Muslim majority. Um, the new executive order, Bobby, has taken out that weird exception for people who are religious minorities, right? Which, as we discussed a couple episodes ago, raised Big a vulnerability. huge yep. entanglement establishment clause problem. Um, and last, and I have to say, happiest to me. Delayed implementation, um, so we don't have the chaos right. of the airport right. cases and the craziness of those first couple days. You know, if this, had, Steve, do you agree that if this had been rolled out as the original and only version, and perhaps with some preparation where it was explained this was coming, and if that had been the case, they'd be in vastly better position right now. There'd still be issues. I mean, so, so I want to say, yes, they'd be in vastly better position. Um, There'd still be issues. Some of those issues are baggage related, right? That we didn't have, that we had this first version. Bobby, I still think there's an establishment clause problem with the focus on those six countries. Um, yeah, so I still, unless that might be one where we disagree, because I think that to me, before, it, if anyone heard the the, the first yeah, episode, yeah. I thought there was a pretty clear establishment clause problem with the minority exception. With the minority exception, so they've taken out the glaring one. I, I it's a harder one. So it's, it's absolutely a harder yeah, one. Yeah. So so I would argue that 
I, I understand that people say, look, Trump has repeatedly said he, what he wants is a Muslim ban. So no matter how they tailor it and how, how neutral it looks, we know what it really is. It's just religious discrimination. Um, I, the administration's official position, as I understand it, is no, the, these are the countries where we have the most concern about the quality of their screening on their end uh, and, and don't have enough okay. confidence, and we want to take more time to polish it. And the question really boils down to, what was Trump, has he been so egregious in talking about a Muslim ban that it just taints and, and effectively precludes them from having so, any constraints So I don't think guy. it taints or precludes, but I do think that when you have the Secretary of Homeland Security basically putting his name on a memo that says that the security justifications for focusing on these countries don't actually persuade, right? I think yeah. that's where this becomes well, so, a okay, problem. So, so there, there's an interesting question. There's the establishment clause, like smoke out yep. the hidden, it's just discrimination message. And there's been a good faith, non-religious discriminatory reason put forward. But then the question becomes, okay, oh, but is it bogus, right? And and then there's related questions of do the courts have to defer to the executive right. branch? And, and that's going to be messy. Assertions. Yeah. And then there are also perhaps some marginal cases where we're going to see still due process arguments, right, where you have folks who might have some kind of connection to the U.S. who are implicated. Yeah. Although those changes you mentioned about peeling out the LPRs, Mitigate that visas, to a large degree. I think that takes most of that off the table. But here's the problem, right? So it's entirely possible that the new executive order has indeed gotten rid of all the low-hanging constitutional fruit. In the process, Bobby, I actually think it's also completely undermined its purpose, right? Because this thing that was incredibly urgent now has delayed implementation. This thing that was supposed to be categorical is now riddled with exceptions. Yeah, I, I think so. The, the urgency element, I think, was more about the, the political case for it, right? And I think you know that's been undermined uh, to a certain extent. But it, oh, I think too. But I think too. it's fair for them to say, look, we. We still think it's urgent, but we were told by our lawyers that we're not getting anywhere at all, and we'd rather have half a loaf than a, than no loaf at all. I think that's right. I'm, just, I'm still not sure that in its current form it survives completely unscathed, but... but I, I totally think it will, except there's one thing. It's not the constitutional argument. Right. It's that same statutory, statutory right. argument, the statute that says no no discrimination as to... Yeah, no nationality-based discrimination on the visa process. Right. And I, I guess there is just kind of a question of, is, is this... Is it possible to distinguish that statute either as not applying to certain aspects of the order? Say, say right. you just shut down the visa process right. altogether, and, is start, that, and start the visa process. Or it's, or it's just yeah, it's a step prior. Like the visa right. process is is when you get in there and apply, and someone says, "Well, you're a Somali, so I don't think right. so." Or do the exceptions take care of it? Right? Are there enough exceptions for folks who can show right. that even though they're from yeah. Somalia or Yemen or or? Yeah. or and I, I, will, I will go forth. I will go further and say that I think. In the end, I think my prediction is that the, the courts ultimately, and this may happen only at the appellate level, are not going to take a super hard line saying, nope, you just can't do anything on a country basis by way of having pauses to, to reconsider yep. whether you've got the right screening. No, we'll see. I, I think that actually they're not going to go that far. So I think this one is going to stick. Um, I, I don't think it's going to stick in its entirety, but I think it's going to be certainly a much better, stronger case. And, and one wonders if this is what we should have had all along. Oh, no question. This is this is like this is kind of like the military commissions, right? That there are but, later versions right. that make so but much just, more sense. Than but the look first how one. the baggage has hurt the commissions. Exactly, right? that's and the I same problem. The same, um, and and even if this is legally acceptable, I still yeah. think it's an enormous moral stain on our. So both both the military commissions evolution example and the refugee order yep. uh, evolution example are lessons for future uh, you know people in the White House and elsewhere. 
when you think like, well, let's start by, you know, seeking everything we want with the most aggressive posture and then peel back from there on some sort of negotiation theory of slicing the bologna, yeah. that's pretty foolish because you set first impression narratives in rhetorical baggage and political baggage and, and it never goes and away. And judges' minds. And, and you reduce your chances of surviving litigation challenges. All right, so now that we've agreed on everything, let, let's finish this week's episode with uh, um, something that I think we completely disagree about, which is your preposterous view that Kawhi Leonard is somehow the NBA MVP. <laughs> did you not see what he did at the end of the game when we beat the Rockets the other day? I, I, I did see at, that. And here's the key phrase, at both ends of the court. I saw what he did at both ends of the court. So you want to give the MVP based on 30 seconds in one game in the middle of March? I, I think it's a highly representative 30 seconds. So let, let's, let's Let's get fair, uh, fair. So there are four candidates, right? Uh, let's run through though. Okay, so obviously LeBron James is, is all... the best player on the planet. There is no better basketball player in the world. You know, maybe, maybe not. And so he's obviously he's obviously perfectly plausible for being described that way. <laughs> but I always think back to the Spurs Cavs NBA Finals, the one where Kawhi wins the NBA. Finals MVP right. award, and he got that on the basis of having been, you know, roughly equal offensively, but having done a great job and a better job defensively, and in, including guarding LeBron himself. Yes, but that doesn't change the fact that a LeBron is still a better player, and b Kawhi has better supporting. <laughs> I'm not. That's an assertion, not an argument. And d Kawhi has a better supporting cast. It, yes, and Kevin no, Love has been hurt, right? No, but he's got Andrew Ky- Bogut. He's got Kyrie. 50, Andrew so, Bogut lasted 58 seconds. He's got Kyrie, so he has a better number J.R. two. J.R. Smith has been hurt. His number two, I would, I would say Kyrie is, is is a better number two than having right. Lamarcus. But meanwhile, we, we've been talking about this for a couple minutes and haven't even mentioned the person who should actually win the MVP. Oh, Kawhi Leonard. No, James Harden. No, did, the Rockets. Where would the Rockets be? Who who is the second best player on the Rockets off the top of your head? Uh, Clyde Drexler? Exactly. Right? <laughs> you can't even name him, right? I, mean, I might make a case for Patrick so, Beverly, but whoever it is. We have to have a meta discussion about what is the award measuring. Because, you know, as you said right. a moment ago, LeBron, best player on the planet. And, you know, that, that's a fair argument. Um, is it the best two-way player? Is it the best overall player? Is it the most star-powered player? Is it the player who makes the biggest difference to his team? Is it the best player who makes the, and People like to say in these debates, and, and here we are, we sound like... It's valuable, not... not uh, outstanding. Right, and, and it varies. It's sort of like the Heisman. Like, what exactly are we measuring there? So, and I think the answer gets bundled up in things, too, about, well, LeBron's, you know, LeBron's won a bunch, and once you've won a bunch, there becomes this sort of, it's like Oscars. Like, right, oh, a lifetime achievement. Is there, is, is it, or, or do you move away from the that's person? That's what I'm saying, right. Yeah. And then, of course... So Carl Malone gets it right, right one year, and right. it's not sort of the year... And, and, and we still sense. haven't mentioned the guy who's actually on pace for the greatest statistical season since Oscar Robertson in 1962. Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook. Yeah, extraordinary what he's doing. It's just, we don't, it's just nobody likes so there's money. Well, so there's a likability factor, and that they used to, I think, hang uh, for a while. It favored LeBron, then it hung against him. I think it's kind of come around. You, as you know, I'm a big fan of him as a person, yeah. from what I know about him, and so I, I don't like all the LeBron haters out yeah. there. I'm not a LeBron hater. Um, with Russell Westbrook, there there may be some sort of reputational overhanging. There's also the sense of well, it's amazing, but also he's just kind of doing it all himself, and it's a team sport. This isn't. This isn't tennis. This right, is, I mean, he scored 58 the other night and his team lost. Exactly. So, like, how much, How do you weight that? And is what's the overall... I know how you weight it. You weight it in a way that leans towards Houston, where James Harden is elevating his team that is plus 20 wins over where they were this time last and year. And trailing the Spurs. And the Spurs would be so nowhere. Where were the Spurs with, last year? 
the Spurs are where they belong every year, right at the top. <laughs> uh, but I, I think you take Kawhi out of this deal, and you know, Spurs are he's critical to the team. I think the the criticality to the team factor is a necessary but not sufficient condition. Yeah, but I mean, look at how they play, look at how they. Play, I mean, the game we went to, right? Look at how they played without their big men, without Lamarcus Aldridge, without Pau Gasol, right? I mean, it yeah. seems to me that that the Spurs more than any other team in the NBA, and this is to their credit, yeah, right. Um, all the parts have to be there. That's the Popovich magic. But magic. that's exactly but why I don't no, think Kawhi's the MVP. Don't, don't punish him for the greatness that is the organization. <laughs> I'm not punishing him. I'm oh, just recognizing you... that James Harden is having a year this year unlike anything I've seen in my life as a basketball fan. I do think, uh, so here's something I don't know. When does when does the window close for assessing performance? I think it's the end of the regular season. So that's so interesting because, you know, what's so funny about the NBA and that award is People love saying the long regular season matters for determining playoff seeding and, and obviously being in the playoffs. But but then the action, it's a whole different league, and it really the NBA really is the playoffs, oh, which is a whole second quite, season. Quite. And yet we hand which out is why we have a finals MVP. and we hand out the MVP, oh, which brings us back to the greatness of Kawhi Leonard. Oh jeez. <laughs> right. I um, think I know when I've won. So 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 uh, I guess I'm not going to try to bring Isaiah Thomas into this conversation. No, don't. No, no father. No. Um, <laughs> uh, let's just say LeBron is the best player in the world. James Harden is having the be- biggest impact on his team, and Kawhi is, a, is, is the a, one I'd most like to have. Um, that may be right, but I'm not sure that's the criteria. Yeah, it ought to be. All um, right. So listen, uh, guys, we're going to be recording a little bit later next week because it's spring break and South by Southwest here in Austin. Um, I we haven't even talked about this yet, Bobby. Maybe a Friday episode next week. Oh yeah, right. So I'm in San Antonio for some of the week, but maybe we'll we can figure get it out Friday. Um, well, you know, have, have try to avoid all the South by traffic. I, I know this. Nothing interesting will happen in the world of national Between security now law. and next Friday. Um, but I know what will happen. Hmm. March Madness. Oh. And so, so we will promise right now that our next episode, episode eight, will be the the March Madness Vladik Chesney bracket busting edition. Bracketology. That'll be episode eight. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. You stay safe out there. Adios.